Good to see y'all. How's everybody doing? All right, good. You're like, I don't know how to answer. There's a lot of us. Some of us are good. Some of us are not as good. But we are glad that you're here. Galatians chapter two, if you've got a Bible with you, we are going to be looking at verses 11 through 16 today. And I have some friends joining me. So girls, come on up. Would you welcome this team with me to the stage? A little more than that. There you go. That's good. So I'm a person who likes visuals. I need to learn things visually. How many of you with me? I like things. Beauty matters. That's why, you know, and seeing things visually matters. That's why Cowboys is way better than Eagles. Pretty uniforms versus puke green, ugly uniforms with wings on the helmet. Like they think they're going to fly. I don't know what's going on. All right. Sorry. I just had to get it in. All right. Spread out a little bit more, girls. Let's do this. How many of you ever played the game Telephone? Like where you whisper into your friend's ear and then they whisper and then at the end you see how the message differs from how it began. Yes, have we played this? Raise your hand if you've played it. Okay, fantastic. How many of you have played dance telephone? Yeah, not so much, have you? All right, so these ladies, by the way, trained dancers, all right? I have had to dance in front of a group of people one of, the, one of the most like, will you do anything for Jesus moments in my life was being a part of an interpretive dance drama. I have no business being in part of an, an interpretive dance drama, but I have done it and I'm untrained and these ladies are trained. So we're gonna play a little game of dance telephone. So the way it's gonna work is Miss Bryn Romanacci here. Everyone say hi to Bryn. Is gonna do a little dance. Give me like two or three moves. Is that cool? All right, awesome. Only one person's gonna look and at the end, we're gonna see how we do down here and see if we have kept in step with our moves. All right, so let's begin. Girls, show us. <laughs> like you didn't know that was coming. Okay, tap me, tap me. No, I'm just kidding. Don't, don't do it. All right, thank this team for me. Thank this team for me. Thank you, girls. So did we succeed? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Did we succeed? Yeah, absolutely. Now, the hilarious part of this game is when you don't succeed, all right? Because it looks real different from beginning to end. But they did a great job of keeping in step with one another. And as we look at our text today in Galatians chapter two, what we're gonna find is that's our theme. What does it mean to keep in step? not just with someone else that you're watching do a dance step or a couple of dance steps. What does it mean to keep in step with this thing we've been talking about throughout Galatians called the gospel? What does it mean to live your life in such a way that you are, Paul's gonna say, keeping in step with what the gospel then implies for the rest of life? How many of you know the gospel is not just to save us, but it's for every part of life? The gospel is of Jesus Christ, the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, in the perfect life, the atoning death, and the powerful resurrection of Jesus is meant to be applied to how we think about our money and how we think about our relationships and just every aspect of life. And so learning how to keep in step with that gospel day by day, moment by moment, is what we call Christian maturity. Now, here's the argument that Paul's going to make, and I'm going to read these six verses for us. Here's the argument he's going to make. When you don't keep in step with the gospel, it's not just that you've kind of made a misstep. It's that you're actually denying the gospel with your actions. You say it with your words, I believe this, but with your actions, you deny it. And of course, would we want to find ourselves in a place of denying the gospel? 
not with our words or with our actions. And of course, the actions is the harder part. Would we all agree? It's easy enough for us to all gather here today. And, I, and a lot of us, I'm sure not all of us, but a lot of us would say, I, I believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I believe in its atoning power. I believe in its redeeming work. I believe that he can save me and he alone can save me. A lot of us would say that. But of course, the journey to maturity for us is learning how to live every day, every part of life, so that we don't deny that with the way that we live, even while saying it with our words. So let's look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 16. The simple argument of Paul here today is we must keep in step with the gospel, kind of like our ladies did a great job of keeping in step with one another. All right, let's read these verses together. Verse 11, chapter 2, begins this way. But when Cephas came to Antioch, and remember, that's Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct, and here's our key phrase, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So that's our text for today. And what I want to do here in a moment, I just want to, I want to walk you through it, highlight a few things for you so we get our eyes in the text. And then I want to show you four ways <coughs> that this text highlights that we can be out of step with the gospel. So it's learning from the negative today, okay? This situation with Peter and Paul where Paul confronts him, uh, we'll kind of dive into what that exactly was and why it was. And then from that, what we can derive is four ways that we can get out of step with the gospel. Now, there are more ways that we can be out of step with the gospel than just these four, but our text today is gonna highlight these four. So here's what we're going to see. Let me give them to you now, and then we'll go one by one through them after we do our little walkthrough. All right, so the first is we can be out of step with the gospel by practicing ethnic partiality. And ethnic partiality, I'll explain what that means here in a few moments. But we can get out of step with the gospel by practicing ethnic partiality. We can be out of step with the gospel by treating other Christians like second-class Christians. We can be out of step with the gospel because we fear men. And we can be out of step with the gospel through hypocrisy. Those are the four that we're gonna see today that affected Peter and Paul in this moment. So let's go back and get our eyes in the text and just follow along with me. And let me make a couple points as we go. So in verse 11, it says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now let's remember our history here. If you haven't been with us, I'll catch you up a little bit. Antioch is the city that's a bit north of Jerusalem. Paul's kind of base of operations is there. Peter comes from Jerusalem down south, which is the center of the church at this point because it's where the disciples lived and, and moved and where the church was first birthed. Uh, and so he comes up, Peter comes up to minister alongside Paul in Antioch. And when he does, he and Paul have both, remember last week we said they have the same gospel and that gospel they have concluded is 
that no one can be justified before God. No one can be made right before God by the works of the law, by doing stuff. It's by faith that we're justified with God. And they both believe this. And so what they'd come to then understand is that meant that certain aspects of the law, even though the law represented a moral life and moral goodness, certain aspects of the law, like circumcision or like certain feasts, were no longer operational. They were no longer required because you can't be justified through them. And so Peter had begun to stop doing many of those things. And one aspect of the law he'd stopped doing was he was not separating from Gentiles when he was eating. He was having table fellowship with them. He was eating with other believers who were Gentiles. Now, that's against Jewish law because of dietary uh, restrictions around cleanliness and what it looks like to eat. And there's also this, this general animosity among Jews towards Gentiles and from Jew Gentiles towards Jews. That's where ethnicity is going to come into play. There's a strong ethnic uh, element, context to this text that we're looking at today. So he had started eating with them and having no problem doing that. But then follow along as the story goes. Paul says, I opposed him to his face. Wouldn't it be great if we all handled our problems that way? Paul gives us a little side nugget there, which reminds us how we're supposed to handle our disagreements with one another. We are supposed to go to one another. We're supposed to come to one another. How great would it be if there was never another word of gossip spoken about someone outside their presence ever again in our midst? It would revolutionize any church if that ever actually happened. The love would be tangible. And I, and I think we are good at that. I think we can become great at it. Go to one another when you have concerns. So I opposed him to his face. And then a strong way is that because he stood condemned. Now, you can imagine that Peter in this moment when he stopped eating with Gentiles because these Jewish Christians had come and they had said, no, 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 you have to keep the law. You can't be eating with Gentiles. That he went backwards and he stopped doing what he was doing. And Paul, rather than seeing it as, well, Peter's just accommodating these other brothers. He doesn't want to give offense. Doesn't want to offend them. Doesn't want to offend them. He's going to try and figure out how to kind of live in the middle maybe. He says, no, no, no. You stand condemned. What you're doing is out of step with the gospel. It is a denial of the gospel, in fact. You say people are justified by grace through faith alone, and yet you let these human categories cause you to separate from them. That isn't just you trying not to offend. That is you denying the gospel, Peter. Now, listen. He says, before certain men came from James, that means from Jerusalem. James is Jesus' half-brother, and he's the head of the church in Jerusalem. He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So you see there that fear of man is the, is the root cause of this. And we're gonna talk about why that puts us out of step with the gospel. Can we just have an honest moment? You don't need to raise your hand. How many of you would say, man, I really fear what people think about me? And it dictates my actions far too often. Fear of man will lead you out of step with the gospel every time without exception. And we'll talk about why it's out of step with the gospel. Then verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So our sin impacts those around us when they observe it, doesn't it? Our sin impacts those who observe it. They're tempted to be led. Now, I love this after, I don't love that Barnabas did this, but he says, so that even Barnabas, wouldn't it be great to be such a thoughtful and faithful follower of Jesus that people are shocked 
when you go the wrong direction. That's what Paul says. Even, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, that fear of man has led to hypocritical ways of operating. And hypocrisy is counter to the gospel. It's out of step with the gospel. Talk about why in a minute. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, what he means there is you're not following the law. You've decided, Peter, that you are not going to be held captive by all these laws and regulations. You recognize that because Jesus has fulfilled the law, that in certain ways, in certain aspects, you no longer need to keep those ceremonial laws. You don't do that. Why are you saying that they can't come to the table with you unless they do it, unless they're circumcised, unless they keep the feasts, unless they follow the purity rituals of the Old Testament? You don't do that. Why are you making them do it? Do you see the problem? Yes? How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And there he's recognizing this ethnic strife that exists. What he's saying is, Jews, one ethnic group, and Gentiles, another ethnic group, they don't get along. And Jews, when they look at Gentiles, they say they do not have a standard of righteousness. They are unclean. They live in such a way that it defames God and is against his purposes. And he recognizes that. But then look at the next sentence out of his mouth. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. So he almost names the prejudice of the Jew against the Gentile in order then to say, but could we all remember, please, that that prejudice is out of place? Because not a single one of us has been justified by the works of the law. Now, that's a technical term here. And I need to explain it to you. You're going to find this throughout the New Testament. This phrase, works of the law, gets talked about among scholars all the time. What, what exactly does that mean? Here's what it means. Works of the law means obeying all the commandments in the law in order to achieve your righteousness, obeying all the commandments. So he says, no one is justified by works of the law. No one can be justified by making a list of all the Old Testament commands and then keeping them one by one. Now we'll find a little later, Paul's argument in chapter three and four, it's gonna be the law itself is not the problem. It represents a righteous standard. It's just that you can never keep it. You don't have the ability. So the standard of the law must be met. You just can't do it. There's only one who can and who has. That's why faith alone justifies and not the works of the law. Okay, so we've walked through it. Everybody kind of tracking there, yes? All right, fantastic. So let's then talk about these four ways that we can get out of step with the gospel that this text highlights for us. And the first is the context, the very specific context of it. If we don't acknowledge the ethnic context and the strife and the tension here, then we're missing the, the key to biblical interpretation because the key to biblical interpretation, one of the keys, uh, one of the chief keys is context, context, context. We don't rip verses out of their context and make them mean whatever we want. And we have to pay attention to historical context. And so the difficulty here is framed inside of a historical context of ethnic strife between Jews and Gentiles. But of course, there's no more ethnic strife anymore in our world, so we're good. Here's the thing that we're going to see. This is such an area where we can get out of step with the gospel because it is such an important area. And therefore, it is one where the enemy loves to be at work, loves to be 
at work. So the specific context here of Jews and Gentiles. Now, let me remind us what an ethnicity is and why I use that term. I use it because it's the most biblical term. The word ethnos is the Greek word in the New Testament, which means nation or people group, all right? And it is not just a group of people with a certain skin color. It is often a group of people who share a skin color, but it is more than that. It is a group of people who share a skin color, a language, and a, and a history so that they have a shared set of values, all right? It is a group of people with shared language, shared experience, and history so that you can have two groups of people with the same skin color. So think Rwanda in the 90s, Hutus and Tutsis, same skin color, but different ethnoses, different ethnicities, because different languages, different history and experience. Follow that, okay? So when we think about ethnicity and we think about partiality, between ethnicities being out of step with the gospel, here's what we're really saying. We're saying that when I show favoritism towards my group, whether it be my group that looks like me skin color-wise or with my shared values, my shared language, when I show preference to them over against another set of Christians, and this is all within the family of Christ now, when I do that, it's out of step with the gospel. Now, the first reason it's out of step with the gospel is because it denies that salvation is by grace through faith. When I say, you in your ethnicity need to be more like me in my ethnicity in order for me to accept you, what have I just done? I've added to the gospel. I've said, you need more to be accepted by me than you need to be accepted by God himself. God requires you to come to him through the blood of Jesus and the blood of Jesus alone, and nothing shall be added to that. And when I add something to it, I've, with my actions... While I declare salvation is by grace through faith alone, what have I done with my actions if I'm Peter and I remove myself from table fellowship, which is this intimate relationship moment? I remove myself from fellowship with someone who's of another ethnicity because they don't have my cultural background. What have I done? I've said, no, no, salvation is by grace through faith. I've said it, but with my actions, what I've declared is it's actually by works. It's actually by some human category. It's a denial of the gospel itself. Now, the second reason that this is so crucial, and now I'm gonna walk you from Genesis to Revelation, so buckle up. We're gonna do it fast. It's gonna be great. I want you to see that there are maybe, I, this is not exhaustive. I was spending some time thinking about this last night. I hadn't prepared it in my notes, but I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, what, along with ethnicity, are some of the key signposts in God's redeeming work that he's been, that he uses to just highlight what he's up to in the power and the goodness of the gospel and the exceeding sinfulness of sin that requires us to need the gospel. And I can only think of maybe four things, again, not exhaustive here, that rise to the level of this. Marriage, ethnicity, and probably something in, well, family coming out of marriage would be the third So sons and daughters, brothers and sisters become this thing that again and again become these physical manifestations of gospel. They they demonstrate the gospel, right? And then the last one I could think of maybe, and it's a little different, would be kind of creation. He often speaks to the, the idea of cities being cultivated and gardens and how they get cultivated as kind of signposts of the gospel. Think about it this way. God is telling a story in all of human history. Imagine it like a road trip that you're on. God is the one who's orchestrated the map, the road trip and where the highway's going. And all along the the road, all along the highway, what he's doing is he's put these signposts there to remind you where you're headed and to show you what he's done to get you there. Does that make sense? 
So you're, you know, you go, hey, anybody been down south recently and seen all the Bucky signs? Right? Bucky's like 189 miles to Bucky's. Don't stop. Wait for the Bucky's. Wait for the Bucky's. Wait for the Bucky's. And you're going to get one every 10 miles. And you're like, oh my goodness. But by the end, you're like, I got to see Bucky's. So as you're going down the highway, there are these signposts. Now, let me use marriage as an example because it's an easy one to understand. And let me show you how ethnicity is just like it. So when we think about from Genesis to Revelation, how is marriage this signpost on this redeeming work of God that he's doing that's highlighting God's redeeming work? Well, you remember in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates male and female, and then he has them get married. The first wedding is in Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there at the beginning of Scripture, we have a wedding. Why? Because God is creating something, this institution that we call marriage, which, by the way, is why we can't change it or do whatever we want with it. God has made it, created it, and he's, at that moment, if we only had Genesis 1 and 2, what we would say is he did this in order to reveal what his nature is like. He said, I'm going to make male in my image. I'm going to make female in my image. They both represent something about me. They are diverse and different, and yet they both bear my image. So there's a unity because they share things in common. There's a diversity. Well, our God is what? Diversity within unity, isn't he? Three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So marriage is this reminder of the nature of God. He's put it in the world so that everyone would go, oh, that shows me something about what God is like. But then he goes, I'm not done with marriage. I'm going to keep using it. I've got a good idea. So then after, now again, we're going way forward, okay? We follow marriage as this reminder of what God is like. And then we get to the New Testament and the redeeming work of Christ has happened. He has been crucified and raised. And now what does God begin to tell us? Marriage is not just a representative of my very nature. It's a representation of my redeeming work because Christ treats the church as his bride. And therefore he says, husbands, wives, you are to display through your marriages the redeeming work of Christ. Do you think he just decided after Jesus died and rose that he would use marriage that way? He said, I'm going to use it in the Old Testament. It's going to be this like, placeholder about my nature and what, what I'm like and create families and show something of my nature. And then when we get to the New Testament under the new covenant, I'm going to, oh, I got a great idea all of a sudden. No, all along he had marriage in place to do something. You with me? So we find in Ephesians chapter five, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Sacrifice himself for her. Be the first to die. Be the first to sacrifice, to give up your desires so that she has what she needs and is more fully satisfied in Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. Respect your husbands. Why? So that the world can see the way the church relates to Jesus and loves him and trusts him, is willing to follow him where he leads. When husbands and lives wives live that way, the redeeming work of Jesus gets seen. And then where does the scripture end? Revelation chapter 19, just three chapters before the end, we end with a wedding, the marriage supper of the lamb, which is why, by the way, our marriages will not exist in the new heaven and the new earth. I and Amanda will no longer have a marriage covenant once the new heaven and the new earth come, or if we die before that. Marriage covenant ends we will not be married when we're in our glorified bodies and we're raised. Why not? Because it was a placeholder for something far better that's coming. Now, I love my wife and our marriage is pretty astounding and I'm so glad for it, but it does not compare 
my true spouse who's coming for me, nor to her true spouse who's coming for her and will win her and redeem her and wash her and glorify her. And what our marriage is meant for, to display will be realized once and for all. You see the importance of marriage. It's this road sign along the redeeming journey of God. Ethnicity is just like it. Because from Genesis to Revelation, God keeps using ethnicity to highlight the power and goodness of the gospel. Let me show you how. I'm gonna be real quick here. God creates human beings. By Genesis 11, we have the creation of ethnicities. What happens in Genesis 11? The earth has been flooded. They're building the Tower of Babel. God had given a command to subdue the earth and cultivate it, to spread out and exercise dominion over it as, as his image bears. And we hear in Genesis 11 now, after the flood, everyone has gathered to one spot. Is that obeying or disobeying the command of God? It's disobeying. We've just had a flood on the earth, not too many generations before. They decide it would be a good idea to build a really tall tower. That makes a lot of sense. And God says, they're not obeying and they're thinking they can thrive without me. And so what does God do? He confuses their languages. There are ethnicities begin to come and they spread out. So they begin to obey the command of God through his merciful discipline. Now, they spread out over time. Those different languages become different cultural experiences, different shared experiences, and even different skin colors as they live in different places around the globe. And so we have a full expression of ethnicity. Now, if we just stop there, you might look at Genesis chapter 11 and go, well, maybe ethnicity is not a good thing. Maybe God wants one ethnicity, but because he had to judge people for their sin, he created these other ethnicities. And maybe what he's gonna do is he's gonna bring them all back to one ethnicity. He doesn't actually like the diversity. He just wants one ethnicity. Maybe that's what he's up to. And that line of thought gets cut short in one chapter, Genesis chapter 12. Because we go one chapter forward and he picks Abram. And he says, from you, I'm gonna make a people group, an ethnicity, a nation, an ethnos. And then you think, okay, so he's choosing one. Maybe that's what he's about. And then the very next words out of our Lord's mouth are, in order that you might be a blessing to all the nations. So immediately, if we think, oh, well, ethnicity only exists because of sin, he goes, no, no, no. I've got a plan. It was merciful discipline that was needed, but also my purposes were working behind it and underneath it. Now, fast forward to Acts chapter two. We're skipping a lot in the midst of the Old Testament. What happens in Acts chapter two? The Holy Spirit is sent into the world. Jesus has died, he's been raised. And we might go, well, is there any purpose for ethnicity that's left? Is there a redeeming, is there something about the redeeming work of Jesus that is gonna be displayed through it? And the answer, of course, is yeah. Here's the beauty of Acts chapter two. We have the disciples gathered, the Holy Spirit descends on them and they begin to preach the gospel. Now there are people from all these different, what? Ethnoses who are gathered in Jerusalem and they preach the gospel to them and 3,000 believe. When they preach, all these people have different languages because that's part of an ethnicity. And when they have these different languages, Peter and James and John and the others, Philip and the rest of the crew, Andrew, they don't speak. They're either speaking Hebrew or Aramaic. There's kind of a debate over what was the common language. But let's just say Hebrew for now. They're speaking Hebrew. They don't know any other languages. These other people speak other languages. God could have done one of two things in that moment. He could have had them share the gospel in Hebrew and made everybody else understand it in Hebrew. 
And that would have been an indicator that God was saying, yes, yes, I'm bringing everybody kind of towards one ethnicity, but that's not what happens, is it? What does God do? He causes these Hebrew-speaking Jewish men to speak languages they don't know so that everyone receives the gospel in what language? Theirs. What is God saying? I am getting people from every ethne. I am going after every group. And then, if that's not enough, go to Ephesians chapter two or text like this one in Galatians chapter two that we just looked at. What, does, what happens here? Paul, in preaching the gospel, says, you want to know one of the most powerful demonstrations of the, of the demonstration, so one of the most powerful demonstrations of the goodness of the gospel and the power of the gospel? The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down between Jews and Gentiles. And the fact that these two different ethnicities can be one in Christ with all their ethnic distinctiveness and yet one together in their mutual affection for one another, in their deference to one another, in their care for one another, when that happens, it testifies to the redeeming power of God in a way that you can't get any other way. That's Ephesians 2. Now let's go to the end of the story. We end with a marriage in Revelation 19. Well, right before that, what happens in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7? The lamb who was slain is counted worthy of praise in Revelation 5. Why? Because by your blood, you have redeemed people from every what? Ethnos. From every ethnos, you have redeemed them. This is your design. It's your plan. It has been working from the beginning to the end. And then in Revelation chapter seven, the lamb who was slain and is worthy to redeem people from every blood, from every tribe and tongue and nation now gathers them around the throne of the father and they bow down in worship. And there is a sea of worship declaring the worth of God. And it's not in one language. It's in every language. Our God has created ethnicity because he says, one can't hold my glory. I want them all. I have made them and I am creating my glory, getting my glory through them. Now, friends, I'm trying to stay not too fired up here, all right? So I, I need you to see this. The reason it's out of step with the gospel, when we show partiality, which means I give you in my ethnic group preferential treatment, preferential opportunities, more voice, when I give that to you and deny it to someone else from another ethnic group, when I require of you from another ethnic group a standard that I do not require of myself or others in my ethnic group of righteousness or purity, when I require you to step outside of your culture and your way in order to be more like me, to relate to me, when I require that of you for fellowship with me, I have denied the gospel with my actions, even while I might speak it with my words. And it's tragic because it's this beautiful thing that God made to display the gospel. And like I said, there aren't that many of these signposts that are just so evidently from the beginning to the end of the biblical story where he's going, this is, I made this to show you what I'm doing. And when you don't practice it, when you don't see it, when you harbor ethnocentrism or racist attitudes or, or, or when you 
think about the other as lesser than you, when you don't have a spacious heart that has room for the other, you have made the gospel unclear to everyone around. Watching. Do you see it in the scriptures? I'm not making this up, right? I hope you see it. Test me on it. Go back. Read, beginning to end. This afternoon, I'm sure you can do it. So listen. Now let me show you what partiality looks like because I need to, I need to broaden out. That's the specific context, but you can just as well say the second way that we can get out of step with the gospel is when we treat any believer, not across ethnic boundaries, but anyone who's any other believer, when I treat them as a second-class Christian because they're not like me or they don't inhabit some worldly category that I inhabit, right? So male, female, poor, rich, right? Any sort of category, educated, uneducated, right? When I take any category and use it to say, you have to be more like me before I will relate to you, that becomes a denial of the gospel. I'm out of step with the gospel. Let me give you a couple texts that are good reminders. And then we've, we've got to hit our last couple of points here. So listen, <coughs> Romans chapter two. So what we're asking now is what does it look like, whether it be in the category of ethnicity or whether it be in the category of any other thing, for me to show partiality, to treat someone as better than another. So a couple places in the text to look. Romans 2, 9 to 11 says this. It says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. In other words, both are gonna be subject to judgment for evil, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no What's the word there? Partiality. In other words, God is not saying, Jews, you get a free pass, but Gentiles, you're gonna be judged. And God is not saying, Gentiles, I'm not gonna bless you with good things when you are honoring me and obeying me, but I'll do that for Jews when they honor me and obey me. He says, I don't show partiality. Regardless of, in this case, in that text is ethnicity, Jews and Gentiles. So, what does it look like to show partiality if in my mind or in my heart I harbor a belief that I, and maybe my group, but maybe me just specifically, when I consider myself more worthy of God's blessings and less deserving of his judgment than someone else. The second example of partiality is 1 Timothy 5.21. Let's look at that real quick. 1 Timothy 5, 21. You, got, you can throw it up on the screen, gang. 1 Timothy 5, 21 says this. It says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So in that text, what Paul is doing is he's making those two ideas of prejudging and being partial to someone. He's using those as parallel ideas. So what we can learn is part of the content of what it means to be partial or to practice partiality is to prejudge someone. So I see this along age lines all the time in the church. It's the presumption that because someone is young, they will make the wrong choice. 
if I prejudge someone, act as if they for certain will do something or make a misstep or make a mistake before that's actually happened, if I treat them as that, that presumption itself is partiality. That's what he's saying. And it's wrong. We deal with people in their actions, not the presumption of what they might do. And friends of us who are a little bit older and have had some few years, can I tell you, we need to not do that to the younger generation, shall we not, please? And recognize that, yes, they need to grow in wisdom. They need to listen to their elders. All these things are good and right because they help grow in wisdom. But to presume that someone who is young will act in error is false and wrong. Last one in the most famous text on partiality in, in the Bible is James 2.1. And there, I'll just summarize it for you. James is saying, you have a rich guy who shows up at dinner. You got a poor guy who shows up at dinner. And you say to the poor guy, go sit in the, in the worst seat. Say to the rich guy, sit in the good seat. He says, that is sinful and wicked. Why? Because what you're doing is you're saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sort of give good things to the person who can give good things back to me rather than give good things impartially as God has given me opportunity to anyone who's in front of me, who's a brother or sister in the Lord, regardless of whether they can do anything for me or not. All those demonstrations of partiality become denials of the gospel. We need to see the weight of that, yes? Not just that it's like, oh, I kind of made a misstep there, but rather we go, no, I've denied the gospel with my actions. Now, with the time we have left, let's, let's combine these last two into one. Fear of man is a denial of the gospel and hypocrisy is a denial of the gospel. Why is the fear of man a denial of the gospel? The reason is because the gospel is first and foremost not about the salvation of people. It's about the glory of God. God saves people because it glorifies him. We should be very glad for it. God is determined to save people because he gains glory from it. That's his motive. That's his operating, motive operating. And so when he does that, and we receive salvation as a result of it. But then we fear men, what are we doing? We're putting their opinion above God's opinion. We're saying, I care more about what they think than about what God has commanded or what God would have me do. And the second I do that, what have I done? I've stripped God of glory and given it to some person. That is out of step with the gospel. The last thing is that hypocrisy. So that fear of man, which by the way, fear of man will always lead you into hypocrisy. Over time, and without exception, you will be hypocritical if you fear people and their perspective of you. And can I just say the remedy? <laughs> the remedy is the gospel itself. Because if you wanna not fear what others think about you and move forward in what's right, regardless of what others may say, if you wanna do that, you have to rehearse again and again the love of God for you. It's not until you know what Romans 8, 31 through 39 says, nothing can separate you from the love of God. He who, did not, uh, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also with him graciously give us all things? When you know the richness and the depth of the love of God expressed for you in Christ Jesus, what it does is it's meant to rob you of the fear of people because nothing can take you not tribulation or distress or sword or nakedness or famine, Paul says. None of those things can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And the implied question then is, therefore, what should you be afraid of? And the answer is nothing. Because you are in him. 
He is yours, you are his. Now I'll also say there, there's probably no way to actually get over fear of man other than disappointing someone for the sake of gospel faithfulness and finding out on the other side of it that you're actually okay, that it didn't kill you, that you made it. You may have lost a friend, may have lost a close friend, may have been deeply wounded, but you're still alive and kicking and you still belong to him. And honestly, I think I've gone through enough of those kinds of rounds of things that I'll just tell you practically, I don't know that there's any way to get past fear of man until someone really doesn't like what you do and they really don't wanna be your friend anymore. And then they're not and you realize you're okay. That maybe, I, I just pragmatically, to be honest, I don't know many other ways through it other than that. And then it leads you into hypocrisy. And the reason, of course, that hypocrisy is out of step with the gospel is because you're saying one thing and doing another and you're holding two standards. You're saying this group of people gets one standard and this group gets another. And that's out of step with the gospel because the message of the gospel is there's one standard for everyone and it's receiving through faith the atoning work of Jesus. I hope we're clear about the gospel here. Are we clear about the gospel? Let's just be clear. That is it, nothing else. So friends, we're gonna come to the table. In fact, servers, you can come up. Come on up and... As we come to the table, even as they're making their way down now, I just want to say to you this. As we receive God's word today, the, the call to us is to not be out of step with the gospel. It's to do what the ladies did for us. It's to see what the gospel does and to mirror it and to bring it home in every area of life. And as you do, friends, there's, there's joy and there's life and there's hope and there's fullness. Now we come to the table of the Lord and it's fitting that we do today because as we take these elements, we are partaking of the very thing we're talking about. This is the demonstration of the gospel to us. The the body and the blood of Jesus represented in these elements is the thing that was given to set us free. And can I just tell you, when you walk in this, you can be free from the fear of man. You can be free from hypocrisy. You can be free from those ethnic biases that take hold of our heart and mind you can be free as you bring yourself underneath the finished work of Jesus. So now, friends, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, just let these elements pass by because, again, we're talking about actions and words. Every one of us that's gonna partake of these elements today, we're gonna do that as an action which declares the gospel, which says, I believe. I believe that Jesus' death and resurrection has brought eternal life for all who have faith. And if that's not you, just use this as a moment to ponder, consider where you are in life. And we would, we would certainly say to you, we believe God is wanting to draw you to himself. All who are, you don't need to be a member of this church. If you have faith in Jesus, this table is for you. If you have given your life to him and declared righteousness through faith, this table is open to you. And so we'll invite you then to come now. And as we're instructed to do, we'll examine ourselves while we hold the elements. And then we'll all partake together in just a few moments. So servers, if you'd come.